Hello and welcome to Mrs. M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. It seems like months since I last sat down to chat with you all. Between some family trips, computer surgery on my poor laptop, painful hands, summer gardening and the utility companies deciding to dig up my road three weeks in a row, time has just got away with me. Rather than fret too much about the lull, I thought I would just enjoy my making and what passes as summer in the UK. So, to returning listeners, thank you for bearing with me during this summer hiatus. And a very special thank you to everybody who sent me recommendations for resources that deal with natural dyeing on cotton and linen. I also extend a very warm welcome to new listeners, including anybody who found me through the kind recommendations from Emily of Fibertown, Zoe of Pins and Needles, and Eva of The Charm of It. I'm Meg and I come to you from London. In my podcast, I explore my love of natural materials and the act of making, but from the perspective of somebody concerned about environmental and ethical issues. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs. M. Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs. M, with a hyphen between each word. As always, I will link all this information in the show notes, which are available on my blog, Mrs. M's Curiosity Cabinet. You can also find these details in the Ravelry group for the podcast. My silence over the last few months has meant a lot of time to explore materials and work on various handmade projects. There's too much to cover in one episode, but I thought today I would bring you up to date with some of my knitting projects and my sewing focus. And I will also be announcing a giveaway, so stay tuned. I hope you're settled in with your favourite drink or tipple and one of your whips. Let's kick off with an update on my ongoing sock experiment. Last time I reported on this no nylon sock experiment, I was working on some short ankle socks using Northern Yarns 100% pole dorset wool. Those socks have had repeated wear and they are holding up well. If I'm honest, I probably didn't pick the right pattern for these socks. Luli's ankle socks with ventilation is a super pattern, but the wool is a little too spongy and thick for this style of summer socks. If I use this wool again, which is highly likely, I will probably go for a ribbed sock that is better suited to my winter ankle boots. As this was a new to me pattern, I also knitted a corresponding control pair so I could assess the sock and yarn combination as objectively as possible. For the control pair, I worked with West Yorkshire Spinner's signature four-ply wool. This blend is well known to me. I've pretty much knit all my handmade socks to date out of it. It is a 75-25 wool and nylon blend, made as the name suggests in Yorkshire. It is a hard-wearing sock yarn made of British wool, including 30% BFL, and is not dissimilar to reliable German sock yarns. As I was working with a yarn that was so familiar to me, I went a bit off-piste. I knit one of the control pair entirely in the West Yorkshire Spinner blend. For the other one, I decided to knit the cuff and foot of the sock in this wool, but to use a sample of non-nylon yarn on the heels and toes to create a sort of hybrid control pair. Why? I had heard that the Knitting Goddess was launching a new 100% natural yarn and had the opportunity to try a little sample. The new yarn is called Brit Silk and has a very similar composition as her Brit Sock blend, so I assumed that it might work as nylon-free sock yarn. Like the Brit Sock, the new yarn consists of 40% BFL, 40% Wensleydale and 20% Alpaca, but with a final 20% made up of silk rather than nylon. 
The sample mini skein came in variegated rainbow colours, but Joy of the Knitting Goddess is also offering it in semi-solid greys. I have worn my quirky hybrid pair of socks several times now, and the toes and heels are holding up remarkably well, even though Brit silk was actually designed for shawls. That makes complete sense. The long wool of the BFL and Wensleydale combined with the alpaca and silk means lots of drape. And at £19.50 for 100 grams, Brit silk is definitely a luxury yarn. But I had socks on my mind. And I wasn't the only one. My Nitaly Chum Mei Lin, aka Blythe Spirit on Instagram, made a half sock and wore it inside her walking socks when she went on a day hike. If you want to know how her halfling sock held up, check out Maylin's blog over at juliahedges.blogspot.co.uk. Although I jumped the gun a bit with assuming Brit silk would work for socks, it's an excusable mistake. Joy is a dyer who pushes boundaries in terms of blends. Nearly two years ago, Joy brought out a Shetland Wensleydale blend for knitters looking for a natural alternative to nylon. It's a yarn that I plan to try as part of this sock experiment, and one I hope to love. I mentioned in my first episode that I like to support yarn businesses that do more than just offer nice wool. The Knitting Goddess is definitely such a company. Joy is a savvy businesswoman who has built up a successful independent dyeing business. But she is also a business owner who is passionate about supporting locally grown wool, local farmers and the supply chains, know-how and skills that are involved in raising the sheep and processing their fleece into a finished product. If you'd like to understand more about why I love Joy's approach, I wholeheartedly recommend episode 75 of the Knit British podcast, in which she and Fourway Dorsets discuss a new wool. One of the things that I remember vividly from that interview, apart from the jollity, was Joy's recognition of what constitutes a fair price for suppliers. Not just a fair price for the fleece, but for the work needed at every step of the processing. This does of course mean that Joy's wools are not particularly cheap, but if I'm going to occasionally treat myself to something special, I would like to know that it is supporting livelihoods along the way, and supporting them properly. I have already started work on my third test pair for this sock experiment, and I'm using an 80-20 blend of mohair and Wensleydale from Whistlebear Farm. I had always planned on trying this mohair blend, but when Catherine, also known as African Daffodil on Instagram and Ravelry, very kindly gave me a skein of this yarn, it leapt to the top of my queue. Although the grist of this blend, i.e. the yards per pound, is similar to the Pole Dorset, it feels a finer yarn, so I thought it would be more appropriate for the Ludi ankle socks. I cast on a pair toe up with 2.25mm needles, or US size ones, during a family trip to Ireland. I got about halfway up the foot and decided that the fabric was too loose for my hooves. I knew that with blocking it would probably close up a little, but not enough to withstand the wear and tear I put my socks through. As I was only travelling with one set of needles, I had to wait until I got home to cast them on again with a smaller set. By this time, though, the weather had turned even more autumnal, so I decided against a pair of socklets with summertime ventilation. I have therefore cast on my go-to sock pattern, the planum. I am much happier with the denser fabric, and I will report on the progress in coming months. Whistlebear has two four-ply blends, the Yevering Bell, or Yevering Bell, and the Cuthbert Sock Blend. I'm using the first one, as this is what I was given, rather than the sock blend, which I understand is actually in very short supply at the moment. 
The yarn comes from a single farm in Northumberland, the county in the far northeast of England, just south of the Scottish border. It costs £18.50 for 100 grams, and for that you get at least 350 metres or 380 yards. And whilst this has absolutely no bearing on the yarn's sock potential, I'm using the colour delightfully named Ethelberg's Passion after the Saxon Queen Consort of Northumbria. There is something rather charming about knowing that your feet are protected from the cold by the spirit of a strong woman of the Dark Ages. I have been excited to see how many people are fascinated by my no nylon sock experiment, and also delighted to hear that some have been inspired to test all natural wools for socks themselves. If you are based in Scandinavia and are on Instagram, you may want to follow Anne Skoyen, known as Asalmanak, and I'll spell that A S A L M A N A K. Anne is based in Norway and she is testing local all natural wools for their sock potential. My quirky hybrid control pair socklets and fledgling raspberry pink Ethelberg socks have offered light relief compared to my current major knitting whip, a black cardigan. I'm working on a smart waist-length long-sleeved cardigan with a hint of restrained lace. It is a kind of design that I normally delight in making and wearing, but black wool, no matter how lovely it is, turns it into a bit of a laborious project. Why am I putting myself through it then? Well, my only black cardigan and last shop-bought knit is no longer fit for public consumption. It has been patched and darned so much. And whilst I have been phasing black out of my wardrobe over the last few years, I do like to keep a basic black cardigan and skirt for formal meetings, dressy occasions, and unfortunately also funerals. This black whip is proving to be a bit tiring on my eyes, but it is a handy garment to start to discuss a topic that one of my listeners raised the issue of affordability. Johanna, also known as Revel in Yarn on Instagram, raised a very valid point that environmentally and ethically conscientious choices, whether in the context of making or consumption more generally, are often the preserve of richer people, and that for most people, budget and time are key considerations. She therefore wanted to know my thoughts on the issue of affordability in the context of sourcing materials locally or with a known provenance. Johanna, thank you very much for asking about this issue. It is something that people working in the sustainability sector are deeply aware of, and it is an incredibly challenging topic. But it is one that I am happy to talk about, although you may want to top up your drink at this stage. Some people take the view that just as in the international context, those who can afford it should make the biggest effort to reduce environmental harm as they have reaped the benefits from it. Whilst there is obviously some merits in this position, I have a number of issues with that. For one, it can, as you say, result in the more affluent members of society defining standards for a green and ethical lifestyle. I think it's deeply insulting to suggest that those with smaller budgets don't care or have an appreciation of ethical or environmental issues. In fact, they will often have first-hand knowledge of the issues. Also, the lifestyleization of green and ethical issues, for want of a better term, allows companies to create expensive lifestyle products, ingredients, material, with a price tag that further disenfranchises the less well-off. Of course, this applies across all kinds of goods, but looking at it from a craft perspective, 
The act of making and working with good quality natural materials that come with good sustainability credentials can be really good for our physical and mental well-being. It can not only slow down the mind and help us relax, it can also cultivate connections with community, place and the planet, all things that help nurture well-being. If materials and tools are too expensive, that means limiting people's ability to enjoy the well-being benefits of making. Secondly, those living on tight budgets usually have skills, habits and experiences that are particularly useful and relevant in the context of crafting in an environmentally and ethically considered way. Skills like budgeting, planning, prioritising, eking out resources and minimising waste. Those sensible things that we like to avoid in our leisure time are actually important tools when squaring a love of making with ethical and environmental concerns. On the whole, the crafting social media community avoids the issue of cost. This is totally understandable. Money is such an icky topic, one which involves all kind of assumptions and prejudices. Maybe it's that we like to create a happy, abundant, carefree place to hang out in, one far from the worries of daily life. Or maybe we are just embarrassed. However, as environmental and social justice concerns are part and parcel of my making, and as I live and craft within a budget, affordability is definitely a factor in my making. Therefore, it is not a topic I should shy away from. In fact, I really appreciate it when I hear other podcasters acknowledging cost issues. I love how Eva of The Charm of It mentions how her knitting fits into her overall budgeting and how she doesn't mind re-knitting items to stretch the enjoyment she gets from her yarn budget. Similarly, I empathise with Zoe of Pins and Needles when she admires certain yarns or fabrics, but then in her down-to-earth manner acknowledges how expensive they are and adds that they would be a real treat if she won the lottery. These glimpses of reality are a welcome reminder that I am not the only knitter and sewer working with a finite budget. So, as this is my podcast, I actually want to start an open and pragmatic dialogue around affordability in the context of supporting local producers of natural materials. When I talk about affordability and cost, I want to be very clear. I am not talking about it in the context of living below the poverty level, the grinding poverty that involves someone having to work two or three jobs just to put food on the table, or having to choose between spending money on food or heating. These issues require systemic changes, and I don't pretend for one moment that any of the approaches, ideas or suggestions I might raise in my podcasts will help in those scenarios. Rather, over the coming podcasts, I plan to share some thoughts on what I do so I can afford to use natural materials that I'm environmentally or ethically comfortable with while still working within a budget. Obviously, personal circumstances vary, so things that might work for me may not necessarily be appropriate for somebody else, but I hope that some ideas and perspectives might be handy. Also, none of my approaches and methods are world-shattering or revolutionary. In fact, they are the complete opposite. First up, I want to acknowledge that just as with food, natural yarns and fabrics with a reasonable provenance come at a cost. I will call these responsible materials just as a shorthand, but would stress that what is responsible will vary from person to person depending on their circumstances, location, regulatory environment, knowledge and values. For example, do we prioritise ethical or environmental considerations if you have to make a trade-off? The relatively higher cost of responsible materials is partly because those producing them tend to be smaller companies and don't enjoy the same economies of scale. 
It can also sometimes be down to a green or ethical premium if the company thinks the market will bear it. But on the whole, the higher cost is due to the producer or retailer passing on the full cost of production, unlike many companies which offer materials that we think of as cheap. Now, there is little I can do to reduce the unit price of a responsible material, and here is one of the many dilemmas. I'm not sure how much I would want to. Yes, like other people, I like a bargain, but I want growers, producers and sellers to get a fair price for a fair product. If the unit cost of a particular responsible material gets pushed down so low that nobody in the supply chain recovers their costs, let alone makes a decent living, the whole issue of affordability will just persist. So if I can't influence the unit price, what can I influence? Well, there are three things. There is the rate at which I knit, sew or make, what I choose to make and how much of it. These are all the things that are within my control. And I'll talk more about my knitting speed or rate and also the volume that I make in future episodes. But today I just wanted to focus on what I make. I tend to knit to clothe myself for relaxation and importantly also for warmth. This means that my wool budget comes from several budget lines. The clothing, the leisure and the heating budget. I'm one of those people who is so wary of wasting energy to heat a poorly insulated Victorian home that I prefer to wear layers of wool rather than turn the radiators on or up. This budgeting priority works in our home because it's just Mr M and me, and of course Dante the cat, and Mr M always runs hot. If it were down to him, we'd never have the heating on and we'd have all the windows open in winter. My reference just now to a wool budget and budget lines tells you something else about me. I'm a meticulous budgeter, planner and saver. I learnt this from watching my mother run a household with four children on one income. And she learnt it from her Victorian-era grandmother and also from having grown up during the Second World War and the long austerity years that followed. My household economics training happened purely by osmosis, but later in life, as so many of us, I had the opportunity to put it into practice when money was in short supply. Due to the sort of generational lineage of this training, it means that I run my home on principles that date back to an era of shortages, to an era when conscious consumption was the norm rather than a lifestyle choice. So what does this mean in practice? Basically, I plan, prioritise and budget to the nth degree. In terms of my knitting and sewing, I work out an overall clothing budget, list which clothes I need to replace, which items I can't yet make myself and their costs, and also what money is left for the items that I can make. Then I work out how I can maximise whatever money is left in the budget, and of course my time, to make replacement garments with as many reasonably sourced materials as possible. And the reality is, sometimes I have to accept that there will only be enough in the budget to make one or two items with responsibly sourced materials. At times, this whole process can feel like playing four-dimensional chess. The first dimension is my existing wardrobe, and the second, the wish list. The third are the various permutations of if this cardigan in that wall, then skirt A and tops B and C in that fabric. 
And the fourth dimension are the variables, the changing price, material availability, my time allowance and money supply. Because yes, even though I plan, there are always unforeseen demands. To many, this probably sounds like a tedious mathematical exercise. But I keep swatches of the fabrics and yarns I've used on previous makes to hand as an easy visual reference and use things like shade cards or swatches or internet pictures to illustrate the possible future makes. It's the nearest thing to window shopping that I can bear. Now, I'm not sharing my planning and budgeting methods to say, woe me. Rather, I just want to highlight that there is another reality to the impressions we might get from Instagram and podcasts. I know that some knitters and sewers are very comfortable with the serendipitous nature of buying fabric or wool and then waiting for the items in their stash to tell them what they want to be. But there is another equally valid alternative, one that involves detailed plans, lists, budgets and, of course, saving. Take my black cardigan, for instance. This is a sensible, classic garment. It needs to look smart and I also want to feel good in it, which means it must not only fit and suit me, but if possible, I'd also like to knit it with yarn that I feel is relatively responsible. West Yorkshire Spinners has a black yarn in its Wensleydale DK range. Now, Wensleydale is a lustrous long wool, so it has a nice drape, but wears extremely well, much better than, say, a 100% merino. It's the type of wool that will last for years, so just the thing I want for a classic black cardigan. This wool is made from wool reared and processed entirely in the UK, and at £8.40, for about 225 metres or 240 yards. It's not bargain basement cheap, but it does offer real value for money, particularly if I pick a pattern that uses a yarn efficiently. Now, I'm not petite. I am five foot six and I have a hippie hourglass shape. As with many women, my size can fluctuate a little, but even at my slimmest, I am long in the body, I have a sturdy rib circumference, and I need long sleeves to keep my wrists warm. So in other words, I will never get a sweater out of 250 grams of wool. It takes more yarn or fabric to dress me than my gamma-esque or petite friends. Now, this is not about body shaming, it's just a statement of fact. My shape and size have a financial implication that I wouldn't necessarily see if I were buying clothes on the high street. It also has an environmental implication. On a like-for-like basis, my garments will have a slightly higher environmental footprint than those of my more diminutive friends. It's not something I feel guilty about, but it is something I'm aware of, and it does inform my decisions about what I sew or knit. For example, I really love heavily cabled cardigans and jumpers. However, they eat yarn. More yarn than I can personally justify, either in terms of cost or environmental impact. Now, if I didn't run cold and I only made one sweater every other year, I may feel differently about it. But as somebody who lives in cardigans all year round and rotates them through airing, washing and drying, for me it just makes more sense financially and in terms of an environmental impact to knit several more yarn-efficient ones. So for my black cardigan, I settled on the Wainthrop pattern by Andy Sutherland. It is a well-fitted cardigan knit predominantly in stocking stitch with a few strips of lace. It was designed as quite a cropped cardigan, but due to my body shape, I have lengthened it. 
I am using a double knit weight yarn rather than the worsted weight that it calls for and this combined with the design of the pattern means that even with the added length I should be able to squeeze it out of 400 grams of wool. Choosing to make yarn efficient patterns, particularly for, for garments, helps keep the overall yardage that I use on any single item down. And for me, it can make all the difference between the cost of reasonably sourced materials being manageable as opposed to prohibitively expensive. And even if I end up using a wool that is not as virtuous as I might like due to budget constraints, at least my yarn efficiency means I am limiting, if nothing else, the environmental footprint of that particular garment. I take the same approach with my sewing, by the way, where it's even harder to source responsible materials. If a pattern calls for a lot of fabric, I just don't bother with it. I will look for another one. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody should avoid all over cables. Jenny, I think you look fantastic in them. And if I had your physique, I would certainly wear them myself. Similarly, if maxi dresses or 50s style full circle skirts your thing, go for it. I just wanted to offer another perspective that might be helpful. My environmental resource awareness is not just limited to the provenance of the materials I use but also how much of them I use and it has definitely shaped my personal style just as much as my budget consciousness. Also I know from the times when I was living on a very tight budget that it can be really draining to keep having to settle for A instead of B for cost reasons. Even now that can still grate. So psychologically, I find it much easier to own the decision to make something that is more resource efficient when that is based on an environmental or an ethical rationale, particularly if that resource efficiency means I can actually afford to invest in materials with a slightly kinder provenance. Over the coming episodes, I will talk more about affordability and time issues involved in squaring my love of making with my sustainability concerns. I will also include some thoughts on how I source more affordable walls and fabrics that still tick environmental and or ethical boxes because they are available. I am however aware that my suggestions on more affordable responsible materials will very much be UK focused and linked to my aesthetic for rustic natural yarns and neutral colours. Therefore, to make this as relevant to as many listeners as possible, I should love to hear your thoughts on how you manage to keep sourcing walls or fabrics with a reasonable provenance affordable. What ways have you found to support local independent fibre producers without breaking the bank? As an added inducement, I am linking this crowdsourcing of ideas and resources to a giveaway which has very kindly been sponsored by the daughter of a shepherd. Like many knitters who love rustic wool, I was inspired by Rachel Atkinson, aka Knittingtastic on Instagram, and the lady behind the daughter of the shepherd wool. Two years ago, Rachel blogged about the pittance her father, a Yorkshire shepherd, would get for the fleece from his Hebridean flock that was marketed through the British Wool Marketing Board. It would be less than £10 for 300 fleeces. Yes, that's right, £10 for 300 fleeces. And that meant he would make a loss on the shearing of the sheep. 
The wool board aims to maximise the value for wool, which for many farmers is a byproduct, but in reality it focuses on selling bulk quantities in a global commodities market. And darker, rustic wools don't fetch much, as they are seen as only fit for carpet or insulation. As somebody who knits and sees potential yarn and knits when looking at sheep, Rachel wondered if it was possible to realise value for her father's fleeces. Rather than just wonder, she took matters in her own hands. She took the 2015 clip and set about having it spun up. She launched the finished yarn, an exquisite rustic DK wool, which has the colour of deep bitter chocolate and the most wonderful sheepy smell, at last year's Edinburgh Yarn Festival. And such was its popularity that we knitters wanted more. This year she was offering both double knit and four ply wool, spun from her father's Hebridean sheep, blended with a little swart balls. You can read more about the rationale and process behind this wool on Rachel's blog, My Life in Knitwear, or listen to her talk about the process with Louise on Knit British. I will link the relevant blog posts and podcasts in the show notes. Rachel's story is fabulous. I love her grit and determination, not only to realise the value of her father's Hebridean fleeces, but also for her commitment to processing the fleeces in a way that supports local jobs and skills. Importantly though, this story also shows the very real consequences for producers when we lose sight of the real value of resources. In light of Rachel's experience and the sheer gorgeousness of her wool, I am delighted to be able to give away a skein of Daughter of a Shepherd four-ply and one of her tote bags to one of you. And I am very grateful to Rachel for sponsoring this giveaway. All you have to do to enter is contribute your suggestions and recommendations in the Ravelry thread marked Affordability, sourcing responsibly produced wool or fabric without breaking the bank. As I'm eager to see an exchange of ideas and suggestions, you're not limited to one comment in this thread. That said, only substantive contributions rather than frivolous chatter are eligible for the prize. I will leave this thread open till the end of September. If you are not on Ravelry but would like to participate, you can enter by leaving a comment on the show notes over at my blog, along with your name. To facilitate a random draw, I will then copy each comment over to the thread in Ravelry. I'm afraid, though, I can't include comments on Instagram in this giveaway. Well, that was a chunky topic. I think I'm going to top up my tea now and then move on to something a little bit more light-hearted. I have been doing quite a bit of sewing over the summer and I thought I would share my recent sewing exploits, which I am calling Cracking the Bodice. As some of you may remember, I had a bit of a moan a few episodes ago about resorting to making a jersey dress after the fiasco of the factory dress. Overall, I have not had a great deal of success with dresses as I struggle to get bodices to fit me properly. This means that so far my dressmaking has focused predominantly on skirts and t-shirts. I do want to master sewing for my upper body though, as A, I like dresses, and B, my supply of ready-to-wear tops is perishing rapidly. I could, of course, just make myself half a dozen t-shirts and be done with it, but after making it an Agnes tee, I've realised that's not really a solution for me. There is nothing wrong with the pattern. It is an excellent clear pattern as we expect from Tilly and the Buttons. I have just realised though that whilst I like well-fitted tops, I don't really enjoy wearing clingy tops. I was slightly flummoxed by this realisation, but when I audited my shop-bought tops, I realised that most of them are made of 100% cotton. 
And those that do contain a little lycra are so old that the lycra has lost its aggressive cling. So if I want well-fitting tops without figure-hugging lycra, I need to improve my sewing skills where the top is concerned. As it was summer, albeit very briefly, I thought I would start with a camisole. It would work for the few hot days we get here, but importantly, I reckoned I would get a lot of wear out of this during the colder months as an undergarment under sweaters. I picked the Ogden cami by True Bias as I'd heard good things about it. It's a simple design with a half lining that relies on a drapey fabric rather than darts and pleats for its shape. That said, I actually made my first toile out of fabric that was anything but drapey, but I did this for several reasons. Knowing how difficult it is to fit bodices to my top, I am very wary of wasting virgin cloth on my first twelve. Also, this pattern claimed it needed two yards of fabric. I mentioned earlier that I'm very conscious of fabric efficiency, so as you can imagine, I was slightly surprised that it would be that much. Having read several reviews online though, I was convinced it would be possible to make this pattern with considerably less fabric, and I was determined to prove it. So I scavenged the fabric for the twelve from a previous twelve, the skirt of my disastrous factory dress in fact. The skirt was boxy and capacious. This meant that I had enough fabric to cut each of the front and back in one piece as required by the pattern. There was not quite enough fabric in the skirt to make the half lining, but as it was a medium weight cotton I didn't think a lining was necessary. I just bias bound the edges instead. The finished top is far from perfect, but definitely wearable. Making it in a heavier fabric also really helped show up where I would need to tweak the pattern for future iterations. I have what's known as a shallow upper bust, and have been trying to work out how best to remove fabric between the upper bust, neckline and the shoulders for some time. As there was only a little excess fabric, I decided to grade the armhole down a size at the shoulder for my next wearable twelve. As I now knew the pattern would fit, I allowed myself to cut into some lawn I have had in my fabric chest for some time. As lawn is thin, I made the lining this time, but I lengthened both the body and the lining by about 4cm, or 1.5 inches. I was working with fabric that was 140cm wide, so about 55 inches. This meant that rather than fold it in half, I could fold the selvages to, to the centre. This creates two folds on the edges rather than one fold down the middle, a bit like a triptych. This meant I could squeeze the pattern out of less than a metre of fabric, about a yard in fact, even after I had lengthened it. Needless to say, I was very pleased with myself. The second bodice I attempted was that of a dress. From the dresses I've made before, I know that I look better with garments that have more shaping rather than less. I also know I tend to pinch out fabric at the top of the back with some extra darts. And being thrifty about fabric usage, I prefer an A-line skirt rather than a full circle one. So, after studying a lot of pattern designs, and especially their line drawings, I settled on the Cat's Cradle dress by Decades of Style. This pattern claims that even in the larger sizes, it's possible to make the dress out of 1.8 metres or 2 yards of the wider fabric. The dress has a rather involved neckline, which I had no intention of trying for the twelve. So I replaced it with a gentle v-neck, as that is the most flattering shape for my body. I also lengthened the bodice by my standard 4cm to account for my long torso, and made a twelve. 
I must have had a forgetful few days as I forgot to lower the bust dart, which is something I normally do. The result was a dress that fits remarkably well in the back. Those back darts really do work for me and also looked good in the waist. The bust was just a little too snug as the bust darts were too far up, but that is an easy thing to fix. There was also a little excess fabric in the upper bust, but grading down a size at the armhole curve would probably do the trick there too. I've now made a wearable toile of the dress. Although I could still make a few tweaks for future versions, I can't believe how well it fits, or how wonderful it is to wear a dress that actually fits my body. As the cotton is fine, it will need lining, and being cost and resource conscious, I obviously didn't invest in the lining until I knew the dress would work. But I have now bought it, and I'm waiting for it to dry so that I can finish my first successful me-fitted dress. I could not be happier. I have finally cracked a dress pattern that is really flattering on me. I'm so buoyed by this that I'm actually considering trying my hand at a blouse or a shirt. I know I've probably jinxed it now, but I think it's fair to say that the more I understand my body shape and how patterns and fabric work, the more eager I am to expand my sewing repertoire so I don't have to settle for poorly fitting clothes. Finally, after a rather serious episode, I'd like to end on a light note by sharing a couple of gems of inspiration that I've come across in recent months, and which I thought might appeal to other resourceful makers. I've mentioned before that my love of local fibres is a natural extension of my love of local seasonal produce. Well, in the same vein, I love flowers, but I struggle with ones that are grown out of season under lamps or air freighted in. I'm therefore really enjoying the one bouquet per day feed on Instagram. From the start of May till the end of October, Julianne, or Julianne, makes one bouquet a day from flowers she grows in her garden in Sweden or forages in her area. Some days the bouquet is a posy of a few sprigs, sometimes they are more luscious, and obviously they change throughout the season. This daily post, however, is a wonderful source of inspiration of the beauty to be found in local blooms and always brings a smile to my face. I also found a recent podcast by Rene Callahan particularly delightful and inspiring. Rene, also known as East London Knits on Ravelry and Instagram, is a knitwear designer and has recently launched a video podcast on YouTube. I enjoy listening to Renee as she has a lovely, measured, well-paced voice and a dry sense of humour, but episode 8 particularly resonated with me. She shared some tales from a recent trip to Portugal where she met some local artisans. She included footage of a couple of old Portuguese ladies who had been spinning and weaving for years. These women must have been in their 70s, so had decades of experience between them. I was particularly inspired to see their equipment. There was nothing lifestyle-esque about the bobbin winder, spinning wheel or shaft loom that these ladies used. They looked as if they had been handmade from scavenged materials, but were nevertheless extremely functional. It was a lovely reminder that many of the fibre crafts we are rediscovering are centuries old and were only made possible by humans' instinct for tool-making. It certainly got me thinking, and I'm sure that listeners who have known me for some years have a fair idea where this might lead. So, on that note, until the next time, I wish you lots of enjoyment with your making, and I look forward to reading your comments in the giveaway thread. 